and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea at Pi-Haroth in front of Baal-Zephon. So when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces, and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not 
one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. So this is a, a rather long reading, and I was, I'm thankful that you were able to be patient. This is usually, we try not to go over two pages, but this was two and a third of pages. And um, this is a, a, a long story, and I, I wanted to read it in its entirety because it teaches us narrative. And what I mean by that is narrative or, or literature has a direction or a vector. It's pointed somewhere. It's going somewhere. Uh, stories without any direction, stories without any destination, without any trend, without any arch, are just terrible. They're, they're horrible. Pain without a story, pain without a narrative, as we've been learning in our in our parenting classes, pain without a story or frustration, strife, struggle without an end goal, without an end direction is just depressing. It's just pain. But pain or suffering or terror or fear in the midst of a story allows us to see where the end goal is. Where is God taking Israel in this passage? At the beginning, they're terrified, right? Imagine if you will, a giant army. Maybe if you've seen the movie Troy, there's a really great army in that movie. If you've seen The Lord of the Rings, there are very many scenes where there are great armies. A great army is coming against you and your your neighbors, and all of you have goats and ox and, uh, and, and lamb. They can't defend themselves. You have children and wives. You don't have any swords. This story, if you imagine well, and if you enter into the hearing by engaging your imagination to really listen and comprehend with your whole mind, is a terrifying, terrifying story. And in understanding how it applies to us today, we see the parallels about how we get afraid. We, we become afraid often. Last week, we looked at how both the Israelites, as well as the two on the road to Emmaus, were doubting God. And that is so evident in this passage. Even as believers who have placed their hope and trust on Jesus Christ, we still, from time to time, doubt God. And this this type of reading of the Old Testament is vital if we are to read the Old Testament devotionally. If you just read the Old Testament as a set of historical facts without applying it through the lens of Christological or Christ-centered interpretation and understanding, then you are just reading a history textbook and it will be of minimal benefit. But if you take the time to ask the Lord what he might be saying to you in what these stories present, what these historical accurate, authentic narratives demonstrate, then I think you will find great benefit. That is, uh, that is the hermeneutic or the way that I read all of the scriptures, and I think it is vital uh, if you are to get anything out of the Old Covenant. So in, in dissecting this passage, uh, we're going we're gonna to look at three elements. First, we're going to look at the element of appeasing Pharaoh. 
that is. Uh, we haven't covered the plagues. This isn't actually a series on Exodus. I just have chosen a few select passages that we're going to go through. Um, but in in the story of the Exodus, Pharaoh is humbled again and again, and yet he never relents. We're going to look at what that says about sin and our enemies, Satan, death, sickness, etc. We're going to look again, of course, at this main theme of doubting God. That is, last week we talked about our need for grace. In the midst of God's salvation, in the midst of him performing the deliverance that we require, we doubt God, we grumble against God, we complain against God. It's a terrible thing, but if you look at it truly, it humbles you. But at the same time, there's grace to show not only are you uh, weak, and, and fickle and just like Pharaoh in many ways, turning your heart back from the Lord. In many ways, that's true of you, but the grace of God is greater still. And even in the midst of our doubting God in circumstances, he breaks in and rescues us. We're going to look at how that is true in this passage and what it might speak about our lives. And then finally, we're going to look at the parting of the sea. That is, what does Moses' actual act of lifting his hands over the waters do, and how does that represent Christ Jesus? So at the beginning of this passage, we see Pharaoh, uh, he has let the people of Israel go. He is uh, after the final plague where, where in which uh, the angel of the Lord, I believe Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, uh, comes and slays the firstborn inhabitants of all the homes in Israel, even including Pharaoh's home, the final judgment of God against Egypt's pride and harsh treatment of Israel. Even after that, Pharaoh is unrelenting, but he says, enough, my, my economy, my, my country is destroyed, get out of here. Uh, Israel has been a thorn in the side of Pharaoh, and he finally says, go out. But even in the midst of his decision to let them go, finally, he turns back and he becomes hard-hearted once again. He's humbled over and over, and yet he demands at this point that they return. He says at one point in Exodus 10, 7 through 10, he says that only the men can leave. While While Moses and Aaron are doing these plagues against Egypt, Pharaoh relents every once in a while, but then he changes his mind. This is the sign of a fickle heart. This is the sign of, of someone who is a tyrant and will not relent. He, he won't actually let uh, any grace or mercy come upon these people. So at one point he says, the men can go. At another point he says, okay, you can also take your little ones, but leave your livestock so that you can't sacrifice. And then finally he says at one point, uh, you know, that, he can actually uh, redeem himself by repenting. In Exodus 10, it actually, Pharaoh acknowledges his great sin, and he says to Moses and Aaron, pray for me so that, you know, I would be forgiven and forgive this sin of mine this one time and and be blessed. And so he asks Moses and Aaron to, to pray for him, acknowledging his own sin in his harsh treatment of Israel. And yet, even after all of the back and forth, even after 10 mighty economic disastrous plagues in which all of the prosperity of Egypt is dashed to pieces, he does not relent and he wants Israel to come back. Pharaoh, of course, in this narrative, in this story, is a type 
of Satan. And we're going to look at that in a second. Exodus 14, 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. What's happening here? Pharaoh had let Israel go. He had said, fine, that's enough. You've just killed, you know, a great portion of my future leaders and children and the next generation. I'll let you go. And so he says that they can go out a short while, they can leave Egypt, they can go and serve and worship to Yahweh. And yet, at this place, when Israel is going out to worship Yahweh, Pharaoh changes his mind. He says, no, you're going out too far. I still want control over you. Pharaoh is like, if you've ever seen in the movie Star Wars, I know I, I reference Star Wars a lot, but there's this guy in, in A New Hope who is the commander of the Death Star. His name's uh, General Tarkin. And he, he basically threatens Princess Leia, I'm going to blow up your planet. And uh, then she says to him, the tighter you close your grip, the more star systems you'll, will slip through your fingers. It's a great quote, but it's vital to understand Tarkin in that story is like Pharaoh in this story. He, Pharaoh is attempting to close his grip on Israel. He's attempting to control and to manipulate and to put into servitude these Israelites so that he would have power and he would be able to wield authority. And yet, as Pharaoh closes his grip, as Pharaoh goes after them this one last time, he's going to meet his end. It's a great, it's a great story, and I hope that you can feel the anticipation building. He, he says, what is this that you've done that, you, that we've let Israel go? He basically says, our foolish counsel of, of just yesterday said Israel could go, and we need to change that. We need to bring them back and put them in slavery once again. Plague after plague comes, and yet they're not going to go. Israel cannot simply stay in the land of Goshen and permit Egypt to be right next to her. In this story, we're presented with the fact that Pharaoh is not going to merely tolerate Israel's existence in his land. He wants complete control or nothing. He wants complete authoritarian uh, totality uh, of power to be centralized within, with, within himself or to have nothing to do with them at all. And so, so Pharaoh is identified as this evil bad guy tyrant. He is therefore a symbol of Satan and sin. He's a type or a, a character who embodies the characteristics of someone who would be an evil bad guy. Or in this story, we understand him to be a type of Satan. That is the type of control that the evil one attempts to coerce or to force over the minds of the unbelievers. And so in this passage, he demonstrates he, he demonstrates the despicable characteristics. So Pharaoh at this point is, uh, is demonstrating what Satan might be to the heart of a believer or someone who's even entertaining beginning to follow God through, uh, through practicing Christianity. When someone first begins to seek after God, Satan, in, like Pharaoh, struggles all that he can in attempting to entice this person with a sin of this type or any other type of jealousy or unforgiveness or hatred. He does not want to let people go. He does not want to let you go. And so what does this say about the Christian life? It says that we cannot merely tolerate a tyrant. We cannot merely put up with a tyrant. It's impossible to appease a tyrant. Do you know what appeasing means? It means there's this really bad guy, and he is wanting you to do something, or he's wanting to take your land and kill all of you. 
But instead of that, you say, oh, well, we'll just let you have this state or we'll let you have like 10 miles of our border and then leave us alone. It's impossible with a tyrant to appease them successfully. You can't just make peace with Hitler, if you will. You, you cannot just let a tyrant have a little bit of your land, a little bit of your property, and then at that point, uh, that tyrant will be satisfied. No, Pharaoh in this story is a consuming devourer. He wants all of Israel for his glory to make his cities. And so in this passage, Pharaoh demonstrates what the, the action of Satan and sin is in our life. You cannot make peace with the, the evil one's influence in your life. There's absolutely no amount of pleading or toleration of sin in the life of a believer. That is the nature of sin. It devours, it consumes. It's like a fire which started small in a barn, yet will at the end consume the whole thing. It will grow. It cannot be tolerated. You cannot simply flirt with sin and entertain it. You can't compartmentalize the influence of Satan in your life. I'm going to follow God, but yet keep this one sin of unforgiveness or bitterness because I'm unwilling to forgive my brother. Or I'm going to follow God, yet I'm going to keep these lusts or these, these uh, jealousy goals or these envies for my career or what what have you you cannot merely compartmentalize sin it will not obey your box you cannot merely tolerate satan and live side by side goshen and egypt you need to leave for the promised land this is what the story of pharaoh coming after israel even after god demonstrates over and over again these mighty plagues and judgments against pharaoh the type of satan in this story even after that, Satan will not relent. And so we know that we cannot merely tolerate sin. If you are to be delivered, you absolutely have to be removed from the dominion of Pharaoh by the one who is stronger than Pharaoh. It is not up to Israel in this narrative to defeat the armies of Pharaoh. If you notice very, very clearly, Israel doesn't, you know, rally the, the wagons, so to speak, circle the wagons, literally, and kind of put up a defense of her own. She is totally dependent upon God's salvation. Likewise, it is with the Christian believer. You are not able to defeat Satan on your own. You need one who is stronger than Pharaoh. So Israel had already, as we've been talking about, they've just seen a steady campaign of world-changing plagues and judgments by God. Think about the nature of the plagues. Um, some of them are such that God brings hail and destroys crops. What was the previous blessing that God had given Egypt a generation before that? He had explained, or uh, not a generation, but 10 generations before that. He had explained to Pharaoh through the, the prophecy that Joseph gave interpreting Pharaoh's dream that they were to raise up uh, fields and establish barns to store grain. God comes in and brings hail and destroys the crops and kills off the livestock. Likewise, he also kills off the leaders, the firstborn of, of Pharaoh's house and all of Egypt with him. He, he over and over again brings these judgments against Egypt that are world-changing. If any of these judgments happened in our day-to-day, it would be like sending us into the Great Depression. These judgments are not merely something that you can imagine on a felt board in your Sunday school class. You have to really understand the magnanimity of these judgments. They are totalizing. They, they leave Egypt completely desolate. 
her buildings are destroyed, her crops are destroyed, her source of income through watering the Nile, that is irrigation, that's destroyed, it's turned to blood. God wreaks havoc on Egypt. And in that, after seeing that, for a whole, probably what looks in the scriptures to be a few months of these campaigns, where, where in which God, through Moses and Aaron, wroughts these terrible plagues against Egypt for her horrible sin of pride and, and harsh treatment of God's people. Even after that, in the midst of that story, Israel doubts whether God will, will stay true to his word. This is an amazing revelation of the heart condition of Israel. This is what is in our hearts when we hear God's promise about delivering us from the power of sin through the work of Jesus on the cross. We doubt God even in the midst of his mighty hand being displayed for us. It happens. Verse uh, 10, Exodus 14, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. Now, admittedly, we talked earlier about Lord of the Rings and Troy Admittedly, if you looked up your if you lifted up your eyes and saw a great terrible army that stretched from horizon to horizon coming at you, I would say that it probably is the case that I would fear greatly. It's not an, it's not a anti-semitic understanding to see Israel as doubting God in the midst of this. This isn't a polemic against Judaism. This is a polemic against sinful doubting hearts. This is a statement that says, we are not able to, in our own strength, believe God's word. We're not able to come to this place of strong moral fortitude and just kind of hunker down and say, I'm going to believe in God. No, we are terrified in the midst of these terrible armies. And so in verse 11, it says, uh, the, the people of, of Israel say to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. That, if you can't tell, is a very ironic and harsh uh, statement. That's like, uh, they're throwing it in Moses's face, basically. They're saying, hey, Moses, look at this wonderful army here. They, they've got, you know, bronze and gold chariots, long swords, good shields. Is it, you know, was the economy that bad that you couldn't buy a grave plot like that we need to die out here in the wilderness? That's what they're, they're joking uh, in their mocking re rebuke of Moses. He says, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? If you remember, uh, for 400 years, Israel was crying to God to deliver them from their oppressors. And yet at the first sign of battle, their hearts turn. At the first sign of opposition, they doubt God's word. They doubt his deliverance that he's been bringing for months. And they say God is going to be unfaithful. And they, they rebel against Moses. They even bring to remembrance almost as a point of pride. You can sort of hear it in the, in the way that verse 12 is, is written, that their initial unbelief when Moses had initially spoken to them about God's salvation is being vindicated. As in, we were right to believe that God wasn't really going to be faithful. Listen to, to verse 12, Exodus 14, 12. Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Uh, maybe the message translates it, I told you so. They're saying to Moses, we, we saw this coming. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. This is the heart of a fickle unbeliever. 
suffering under the weight of sin in his or her present conditions, saying, God, deliver me from my horrible life. I need your help. I need you to put my life together. I need you to save me. And yet, in the midst of it, hearing that God has proclaimed them righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ, them saying, no, I want nothing to do with it. I'd rather go back to my sins. This is how deep of a tragedy or a turning point in this story. You've got a great and mighty army coming against Israel. You've got Israel who's supported by a great and mighty God fearing this this other army. And yet at this point, not only do they fear because they lift up their eyes and they look at what their flesh can see instead of trusting in God's word, they also demonstrate that in their hearts, they have been harboring this unbelief all the while. They bring it up as a point of pride. Is this not what we said to you? They were in harsh slavery and opposition, oppression rather, and they want to go back. Remember in Exodus 5, it says that Pharaoh told the Israelites that they had to maintain their current quota of bricks. And yet at this point, they have to begin to make bricks and we're not, and the Egyptians aren't going to give you straw which means Israel has to set up this way of going and getting their own straw. I don't know if you've ever seen how a brick is made, but there's a lot of straw involved. It's impossible to take clay and to form it into a brick and fire it and have that be strong. You need some sort of substrate. You need the straw in the midst of the clay after it's fired to hold and to, to be a good brick. Moses is delivering Israel from this terrible oppression where they not only have to make bricks, but they also have to source the materials. That'd be like someone saying, yeah, I really want you to produce a MacBook and also, oh, by the way, you've got to get the steel out of the ground. It'd be a terrible proposition to say, you have to be a master of harvesting and agriculture and getting your own straw and also understand how to build a furnace and source the clay and purify and refine it. It would be a terrible, terrible lifestyle. So the the Israelites have to make bricks without straw, and at the same time, they're treated harshly. There are taskmasters who are appointed over the Egyptians, who subject, uh, sorry, appointed over the Israelites, who subject the Israelites into slavery. L- literal, you can't leave, you can't get another job, slavery. Imagine if you were forced to leave your current vocation and go make bricks. It would be terrible. And yet, that looks better to you in this situation than facing this army. They've cried out to God, and yet they absolutely hate his deliverance. They absolutely need God to act. Who is going to deliver the fear out of Israel's heart? Only God can do that in this story. In this passage, in this narrative, Israel has already been brought out of Egypt a a little while, a, a little ways, and God has already frustrated Egypt and destroyed her her country. And yet at this point, Israel wants to go back. It's even, it's even more uh, absurd in the light of what God has just done to Egypt that they would want to go back to Egypt. Egypt's a wasteland. It's like a nuclear bomb went off in Egypt. There's nothing left. And Israel at this point would rather choose doubt and fear rather than believe in the promises of God. Now, again, this is not an accusation against the Jews or against these Hebrews. We believe that they're the people of God like we are the people of God today. What I'm stating is that we need God not only to pull us out of Egypt, but to pull the fear out of our hearts. 
so that we could believe in his word. God's chosen to act at this point, and he's going to demonstrate his mighty hand of power. In, uh, in Exodus uh, verse, uh, verse 27, So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. What God is doing in this passage, in this story rather, he is demonstrating that he is going to save Israel by parting the waters. He parts the sea as we sang this morning in the song of Moses. You divide the raging seas from death to life you safely lead. That's why that's why that passage or that song that has that verse because it's remembering what God did in having Moses stretch his hand out over the waters. So Moses stretches his hand out over the waters and then at that point he brings them back. He he pulls his hands back in and the seas likewise follow. And at this time when Moses is doing this, it says that God is in the midst of Moses's actions, throwing the horse and the rider into the sea. Think about that for a second. Moses is the one who has his hands outstretched, holding the seas apart. Like we talked about in the, the previous passage uh, last week with, with Moses uh, demonstrating the, the mighty hand of God when, when Moses was holding up his arms. And, and at the time that Moses pulls his hands back, the seas come back in. The seas, uh, the walls that were holding up the seas, they're taken down, if you will, and the waters come rushing. And yet in this verse, verse 27, it says, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. God is acting in the midst of Moses's acting. God's causality of wanting to judge Egypt is superimposed or put underneath. Moses isn't just acting on his own. He's doing something that God had instructed, and in the midst of Moses fulfilling that command that God had given him to bring his arms back, to bring his hands back, and to close the sea on the Egyptians, it says that God is throwing them into the midst of the sea. This is the, the way that the scripture uh, uses to explain God acting in the midst of his people acting or rather at this point, his servant. And so in this place, we see that God is, is acting while Moses is acting. And that tells us something about the nature of the work that Moses was doing. Moses's work in parting the sea and allowing the Israelites to pass through the waters in a, in a, on, over dry ground and then bringing the sea closed upon the Egyptians is simultaneously being attended to by God himself. That is, there is divine action in the midst of God's servants acting. And so in verse 29, we see, but the Israel of the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, if you notice, this is very important to understand about uh, the, the, the scriptures. Verse 27 takes place after verse 29 yet in the way that it's retold it's retold in a in a narrative form in which the end is summarized and details follow just so you don't get tripped up by that in in western literature in maybe english minded uh storytelling we always move chronologically and this just so you're not tripped up is it's summarizing and then retelling so so there's that element there um 
first they go on verse 29. Verse 29 took place before verse 27, if that makes sense. Um, so Moses in this story, it's my position that Moses prefigure, prefigures Christ in that Christ on the cross is stretching out his arms to accomplish this deliverance and simultaneously bringing deliverance and judgment. Okay, so many times you, you are told in American Christianity that Jesus Christ died for your sins. That's true. He did. And he also defeated the enemies you could not defeat. That's absolutely true. But at the same time, Jesus Christ, in putting his hands up on the cross, is not only bringing deliverance, but also he's bringing judgment. In so doing, Jesus Christ destroys all the power of the evil one. And again, in this story, as we saw last week, grace always precedes law. It is not, you are not able to begin to believe God's word, as this story tells us, until he delivers you fully and puts his spirit within you. What happens to the Israelites? They doubt God's word, and yet his salvation comes even in that situation. And so in this passage, we learn grace comes before the law. The waters are said to be, uh, in this passage, a wall on their right hand and on their left. And this is where the, the overall corpus of the scriptures must be applied. What does it mean when the Bible uses a, a phrase, the right hand and on the left? That's a very common pattern in the scriptures to talk about God's establishing righteousness for his people. The differentiation between the left and the right hands is commonly used to describe the righteous. That is, right hand from the left hand, going to the right or going to the left, as we'll see. In directing Joshua later on, not in this passage, but in, in the book of Joshua, when God directs Joshua into the land, Yahweh comes to him and he tells him how to walk. Joshua 1.7, this was one of the verses we had to memorize in elementary school in fourth grade. Uh, I, I know it in King James, so I can't quote it in ESV. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn to, from it to the right hand or to the left. Okay? That phrase is in the scriptural economy used to describe walking according to the way of God. Do not turn from, from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Likewise, when God rebukes uh, Jonah for not wanting to go to Nineveh, God asserts his righteousness in saying that Nineveh deserved a prophet because of their current spiritual state. Jo uh, Jonah 4.11, God speaking, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. I think God might be concerned about the sacrifices. God is saying that, that the people of Nineveh have become amoral. They have no ability to judge between their right hand and their left. That, that might be indicative of extreme moral relativity. That is, you know, whatever you want to do today, whatever you want to do tomorrow, that's fine. Uh, God is saying that the people of Nineveh need a great deliverance and that he's right in sending Jonah there. So it's established that the right hand and the left hand present in the words of scripture a, an idea of walking according to God's path or God's ways. 
In the salvation that Yahweh brings, he first parts the waters and then establishes boundaries. God does not command Israel to get their act together and start believing in his word before he parts the waters. That's not how the scripture reads. That's not how the story takes place. Grace always precedes law. You are not able to merely believe God's word unless he first acts on your behalf. And this is what God has done in sending Christ Jesus. The parted parted waters prefigure for the Christian baptism that the people of Israel left Egypt by passing through the sea. Now, in this way, I'm not meaning that the Israelites actually suffered going through the tumultuous waters. I mean that they passed through the waters in a symbolic way. And this prefigures baptism likewise for us. The waters which part to deliver them from Egypt are the very same instrument of the destruction of their enemies, which is what we see in Christ. Christ's deliverance, which sets us free also, according to the doctrines of Paul, shamed the rulers of this age, as we're going to read here in Colossians 2. The very same act of Christ delivers us from our sins and defeats our foes. You're not able to tolerate sin. Satan cannot merely have influence in your life. You must be delivered from Egypt, and Pharaoh must be put down finally. Colossians 2, 11 through 15 In him also, that is Jesus Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, as you can see in Paul's writing to the Colossians church, he says that the circumcision that you've been circumcised with, that is the circumcision of Christ, is not made with hands. What does that mean? What Paul means is it's not enough for you to receive the circumcision that identified the people of Israel. It would not be appropriate for you to come and follow Christ by being circumcised in the flesh, as in a rabbi or some other person, a priest, comes and actually removes the foreskin off of your penis, uh, that is not what is going on here. And at that place, in, in in this radical reinterpretation of what it means to be the people of God, Paul says God's uh, concern is not what you look like on the outside. It's not what you do in the physical. It's what God does that only he can do. You cannot perform a circumcision that doesn't place, take place uh, anywhere except in the flesh. It's not, you're not able to circumcise the heart. Only God can circumcise the heart. And Paul says that what took place when you were circumcised in your heart, that is when God cut your heart, open and revealed its contents, that that took place through the water baptism that you enter into. It says, having been buried, as in Paul's joining these two ideas together. That's why it is so vital for you uh, new believers or young believers, if you are beginning to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it is vital that you obey his words and be washed for the remissions of your sin. It is not just a symbol There is something that takes place, although it's a mystery as to how that takes place, but there is something that takes place by which, according to Paul, you are circumcised in the heart through the baptism that you enter into when you 
uh, receive water baptism. You are buried with Christ, it says in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which also you were raised with him through faith. That is why we believe that as you're as you're baptized with him, we, we understand that when you are going down in the water, you are united with Christ in his death. And when you are raised up, you are raised with him in a real true way, in a way that we can't fully explain. Yet it's a spiritual reality that Paul makes clear. And so the very same dying and raising is you passing through the waters, which was prefigured by Israel going through the sea. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Through water baptism, God in time unites you with something that took place 2,000 years ago. Through your union with Christ, you are said to having been raised with him. That is, that pronoun is describing Jesus Christ. And so God is performing this mighty salvation on your behalf, which is already completely done, and yet he is bringing you into it. This is a mighty, mighty symbol. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What does that mean? What it means is that your sins, which you have performed in this life, those sins are accusing you against a, before a righteous and holy judge. That is, Jesus Christ, by, by going to the cross, through going to the cross, God is taking your record of debts and nailing it to the cross. What also was nailed to the cross? Jesus Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we could be the righteousness of God. You have been given this mighty salvation that not only has Jesus Christ in, in raising from the dead defeated death, sin, and Satan, but also through going to the cross, he has atoned for you, canceling the record of debts which you had incurred. And at this place, we come to the union with the destruction or judgment that God performs. In verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing in him. That is, just as God, through Moses, threw the uh, Egyptians into the sea, so also in this passage, he, verse 15, that is God, disarmed the rulers and authorities, that is Satan and his demonic kingdom, by putting them to open shame in Jesus's triumph over them. That is, God is acting in the midst of Christ's action. It is not Jesus Christ just going to the cross, acting on his own. God, the Father, in the midst of pouring his wrath on Jesus so that you could have your record of debts canceled, God also defeats Satan. And so we see that by the very same act, God has not only delivered us, but he has also judged the evil one. Paul says that baptism or going through the waters is to be united with Christ, and that is a deeper reality than the physicality of which it signifies. Again, you're not circumcised in the flesh anymore. There is something that takes place in your heart. The very fears that take place that we see in this story of Israel not trusting in God's word, those fears that are in their hearts, those doubts, which are very real to them, are cut out, as it were, by God's mighty act. The very same instrument of our redemption was for, uh, for our enemies, their undoing. After Christ had died, he rose from the dead, and through Christ's cross, God has triumphed over the rulers and authorities of this age. And so, likewise, we see 
that we must be delivered. It's not enough to hear the gospel unless God also simultaneously performs that circumcision of your heart, which you cannot do. And therefore, we are put in the mighty place of humility, asking God to make real the ideas that we hear about week in and week out, that we would not just be people who hear God's word, but that it would become real and true for us. And this absolutely is the gospel. When we could not defeat our pharaohs, as it were, of Satan, sin, and death, God through Christ absolutely did. When we, upon hearing the message of grace, calling us to come and follow after God, when we hear that, we responded in doubt and fear, wanting to go back to Egypt, and yet God brings us through the waters and into the promised land. The promised land for the believer is living in the place that God wants you to live, filled with his spirit, residing and presiding over the sphere of authority, namely your family or your job or, or the church that you lead or the, the fellowship that you have in your house. Living in the promised land for the believer in this narrative framework is not just dying and going to heaven. It is to live as a real human being filled with his spirit, living as he intended you. When we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God makes us alive together with Christ. And when the record of debts made a claim against us, God counted it as satisfied. I don't know how many of you have ever had to, to receive a check as a, as a business owner or, or do any sort of financing, but when I get uh, a check in the mail uh, from a client, what do I do at my house in my study? I take the record, the, the check, I then sign it and deposit it with my little phone app. It's delightful these days. You don't have to go to the bank. And then I put it aside into the file saying, paid. I mark their record paid. That's what it means for God to take the record of debts that you have and set it aside. He's not dismissing it by setting it aside. He is saying paid in full, it's filed, that debt is done. You are not at all uh, to pay for your debts now as a Christian your debts have been canceled through the blood of Jesus Christ. God counted that debt satisfied, nailing it to the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mighty word. Lord, we ask you that you would give to us a heart that would be satisfied in your word. Lord, we ask that you would make these things real to us. We know through these stories that, according to Paul, were written for us as, as a, a way to understand what happened so that we would not spur the grace of God. Lord, we ask, uh, sorry, spurn the grace of God, but Lord, we ask that these, these accounts would become alive to us, that you would give us by your spirit fully thriving imaginations that would enter into the stories, considering all their ramifications of what they might say concerning your work. Jesus, we ask that you would give us the wonderful privilege and grace of seeing you on the cross, not only paying our penalty, but also at the same time, showing the, the powerlessness of, of Rome to, to defeat you and the powerlessness of Satan to entice you to sin. Lord, we ask that you would cause us to see, that you would open our eyes, that we would not look at the armies uh, that come against us in our life, but that we would see your mighty hands delivering us. Lord, we ask that you would give us grace, that, that we would begin to really trust that if you have already given us your son, then you would not even spare anything else that we would need. 
Lord, we ask that you would give us a heart that would thrive. And Lord, we do ask for specific grace this week in the midst of our trials, tribulations, our arguments with our family members, the times where we disagree with our our friends or our brothers. Lord, that you would give us grace to look upon your son and to behold him as the supreme sacrifice of love and that you would call us to follow after him not in any resolve that we could muster up, but in total grace, relying completely upon your spirit. Lord, I ask that if there are any in this room who are not recognizing you as dying on the cross for them, that you would, that you would open up their hearts, that you would perform what Paul says, a circumcision, not in the flesh, but of our hearts. Lord, that wonderful grace that you've given to each one of us, do it for them, Lord. God, I ask that you would give us today a mighty sense of your presence as we partake in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.